Uh, as Ryan said, my name is Parker, and I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians, a passage in 1 Thessalonians today, um, that talks about a beloved church, um, Paul's beloved children. And before we jump in and, and start uh, studying it together, let me give you just a little bit of background um, to the church in Thessalonica, the church that received this letter from Paul. Um, Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. Um, and Thessalonica is in Macedonia, which of course is not particularly helpful because it's not a real place anymore. Um, well, it's real, but you won't find it on a map. I don't think so, at least. Um, Paul visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and he only spent a few months there. Um, he spent just uh, maybe two, two months there, something like that, because he was driven out by riots shortly after he arrived there. Uh, he preached in the synagogue, uh, was kicked out, because the Jews dragged the guy who was keeping him. His name was Jason. You read this in Acts 17. They, they dragged Jason out, and they caused a stir in the city, and Paul had to basically run uh, in order to stay alive. So... Paul had to leave this church, a young church that was basically unprepared. They'd only had two months of Christian teaching, if that, maybe less. And Paul left this church, and uh, he, he, he's looking back in this letter in, Thessal- in Thessalonians. He's looking back a number of months later, probably less than a year later. He's gone on to Corinth, and he's looking back to the church in, in uh, Thessalonica, and he's, he's recalling a couple of things that have happened. After they left quickly, he, he was worried about them. He was concerned that they would uh, be prepared, that they would have the teaching necessary to continue in the faith. Because they'd only been with him for a couple of months, they'd only received uh, you know, a few uh, Sabbaths worth of teaching from him, plus what they could get from him as they were with him on a personal basis during those weeks. So he says, he, he explains in 1 Thessalonians 3 what happened, his feelings. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, when they could, could not wait any longer, he was anxious to hear about the church. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So he sent Timothy back. He sent him back to to Thessalonica to encourage the church, to give them more teaching, to find out how they were doing. Paul calls them his beloved children. He says two times in here, he calls them himself first. He says, I'm like a nursing mother with you, my children. And he says, "I, I speak to you as a father speaks to his own children. Paul loved this church and he cared for them. So when Timothy returned, he had basically good news about the church in Thessalonica. They're doing well. They are established. Um, they're growing in love. Paul says multiple times in this book, he says, I am, I'm excited to hear that you're loving each other. Keep on loving each other. Continue to grow in that. But there were also a number of issues. There was some controversy that had sprung up at the church in Thessalonica. Um, the, there had apparently been some people who had died, and there was some, there was some worry that those who had died Already, those who had died before Jesus came back might actually just be dead. They they might be lost because they didn't last, they didn't survive until Christ returned. And so the people there were concerned well, what happens to to those people who die before Christ comes back? I mean, are they just dead? 
Is it just, you know, sorry, wish you could have lasted a little longer? And Paul writes to them with, with that concern in mind. Um, you see at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, no, those who died will be resurrected. They'll be resurrected. He says, in fact, they have a greater hope than we do who are still alive. Because when Christ returns, those who are dead will meet Christ first. They'll be resurrected before those who are alive go to be with Christ. At the same time, uh, they they will come, those who are living, those who are dead, will go to Christ at the same time. But those who are dead will be resurrected and joined to him first. So, Paul says, therefore, don't grieve like those who don't have any hope. Don't grieve as if there is no further hope. There is a great hope. And that hope is that Christ keeps those even who have died. So in this next section, Paul moves on. The the passage that we'll be talking about today, Paul moves on to talk about those uh, who are still alive. About uh, the timing of Christ's return, in fact. Apparently some people there were curious about when Christ would would return. And when this great resurrection would happen. And when they would be be taken to be with Christ. When they would, uh, when Christ would return and establish his kingdom and they would live with him forever. And so there's a question about that. And, you know, many people have been curious about this. We remember even the words of the disciples in Matthew 24, who we're told, as Christ sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Again, after Christ is resurrected, in, at the beginning of Acts, we're told when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So there is, there's curiosity about the Lord's return. And, of course, even beyond mere curiosity, some people have made predictions about Christ's return. I hardly have to uh, mention any of these, but if you're familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have made many predictions about the return of Christ. And to this day, they've all been wrong. But not just cults make predictions about the return of Christ. Even some evangelicals. I, uh, you probably are familiar with the book uh, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988, which is, of course, out of date now. Um, The book claimed that Jesus would return on September 12th, 1988. When the prediction failed, the author revised his prediction, saying that his calculations were one year off, and Christ would return instead on September 1, 1989, or one day earlier or later, or if not then, on Rosh Hashanah, 1990, or 1991, or 1992, or at the latest, September 15th through 17th, 1993. Of course, all predictions failed. So there is this overactive curiosity among Christians to know when Christ will return. And the Thessalonians also wondered, when will Jesus come back? What are the signs? How will we know? And Paul reminds them what they already knew. He reminds them about what he had taught them. He reminds them of the words of Christ, that the day of the Lord is coming, and they should expect it, but the timing is unknown The timing is unknown. Read with me in 1 Thessalonians 5 if you have your Bibles. If you don't, there's Bibles uh, halfway down the aisles here on the banisters. um, Or it'll be behind me on the screen here as well. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, 
you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The first thing that we see Paul say in this passage, in response to the Thessalonians' questions about timing, is that they should expect the unexpected. Expect Christ's return, even though it will come at an unexpected time. He speaks about the day of the Lord here. He says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord was a, a, a Jewish, and after, after Christ came, a Christian term for the return of Christ. A time when God will come and will judge his people, but will deliver the right, uh, will judge the wicked, that is, and will deliver the righteous ones, will deliver his people. Jesus taught that the day of the Lord was his second coming. It was, it was the time when he would return. He came once in humility and in sacrifice to save people and to offer a free gift of salvation to anyone who would trust in him. He said he was coming a second time, and the second time would be a time of judgment and wrath and destruction for those who didn't, did not trust him. And Paul's words here remind us of Jesus' words, that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Remember this passage from Matthew 24, where Christ says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. No one knows. It will be unexpected and unpredictable. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect." Jesus' teaching is that his return could be any time and that it cannot be known. It can't be known. No one can predict the coming of Christ. Not even, he says, the angels of heaven. And even Jesus on his earthly ministry said, during his earthly ministry said, he didn't know the time. Only God knew. But what he does say and what he does warn them about is to remind them that they should expect it to come. It will be coming, but it will come like a thief. What does the, the, the metaphor like a thief mean? It means at least two things. One, that it will be unknown, une- unexpected in that sense, but also that it will come suddenly. The coming of Christ will be sudden, 
like a thief breaking into, the, into a house during the night. This is a dangerous metaphor for the God of the universe to apply to himself. To say, I'm going to be like a thief. I'm going to come like a thief to you. Now note the contrast here also in verse 3. Paul says that Jesus' return will come suddenly. And part of the reason that it will be so sudden is because people will be saying, verse 3, there is peace and security. There's peace and security. In the Old Testament, the prophets warned, the day of the Lord will come when those who say, uh, when, when false prophets will say, there's peace, peace. And they falsely tell you that there will be peace. Paul adds to that. He says, these people will say there is peace and security. And he's probably referring to Roman propaganda. Thessalonica was part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman emperors prided themselves on bringing peace to the empire. They prided themselves. Their glory was in being able to provide a stable empire for, these, for their people to live in. And so uh, there were coins that were minted, Roman coins, that had the emperor's face and at the top, peace, or at the top, security. This was very common. Uh, one, one emperor had, uh, Augustus had on his coin, the Pax Augustus. He claimed that it was the, the, the peace of Augustus. His time was a time of peace. And so Paul is saying, in contrast to what you're hearing, that there's stability and that there's peace and security. There's nothing to be worried about because the, the government says that they can provide this for you. Be warned. The day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly. No political power can stop the coming of Christ. The true king will come and will bring his kingdom at a time when it will, when it will be completely unexpected. When people around you are saying, there's peace and security. There's nothing to worry about. So the coming of Christ will be unexpected. And Paul is confronting this promise, this Roman promise to security. He compares it in verse 3, the coming of Christ, to labor pains. He says, uh, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. I know that at a young church like ours, I hardly have to elaborate on labor pains. My community group has had four births uh, in the last, uh, is that right? Four births or so in the last month. Uh, not month, excuse me. But in the last six months. The point is we're very prolific. Uh, we are a church that takes seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply. Right? So I don't have to tell you about the pains of labor. But the point that Paul is making here is that the coming of Christ will be sudden and violent. Violent, like labor pains. It will be unstoppable. Just as there is the expectation that, that birth is coming, but you cannot predict the day that it will come, so Christ will come. And we should look forward to that day we should expect it, but it will come suddenly, and it will be, at the time that it comes, sudden and violent. It will be surprising. One theologian had this to say on the metaphor of, of labor pains. Here we have a most appropriate analogy. 
Inasmuch as there is no evil that seizes more suddenly and that presses more keenly and more violently on the very first attack. Besides this, a woman that is with child carries in her womb occasion of grief without feeling it until she is seized in the midst of feasting and laughter or in the midst of sleep. There is this sudden coming that we're carrying around with us. The world carries with it this expectation of judgment. A judgment is coming just as a woman carries with her uh, the joy but also the pain that will come upon her suddenly. The day of the Lord is also an Old Testament uh, phrase that Paul's picking up here. The day of the Lord was first mentioned by the Old Testament prophets, and you can find it throughout uh, a lot of the Old Testament literature. The prophets would, would say that the day of lo- the Lord is coming, that it will be a day of judgment. This is what Isaiah had to say at one point about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The day of the Lord will be a horrifying thing for those who are unaware and unprepared for it. That's the point. And that's what Paul's picking up on here. The day of the Lord, although it will be a day of deliverance for those who trust in Christ, he says it will be a day of sudden destruction for those who don't trust in Christ, for all who are outside of Jesus. And Paul adds, they will not escape. There are no second chances. There's no no, no option afterwards, no second option afterwards. The day of the Lord will come so that none will escape. All who have hated Christ and who have not looked forward to his coming will not escape, he says. But Paul adds, interestingly, that this day should should not surprise them like a thief. That they should expect the unexpected. So he, he continues this metaphor. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, but don't be surprised about it like a thief. Why should they not be surprised? Because they're aware of it. They're already informed about it. Paul says, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because he's already told them about it. He's already told them, Jesus will come back. That's what you need to know. That Jesus will return, he says. So be watching for it and be waiting for it. Because the day of the Lord is coming. And so we should expect it. And because the day of the Lord is coming, they should stay awake, he says. That's the second thing he tells them here. Stay awake. Uh, There is no double meaning here. This is not the second point because I was 
fearing that people would fall asleep during the sermon. Stay awake is a metaphor here. It's a metaphor that Paul uses. He's talking about the day of the Lord. So it only makes sense that speaking about the day, he would use this day and night metaphor and talk about staying awake versus falling asleep. Paul says this, Christians, you Thessalonians, you Christians, are children of the day. Children of, first of all, the day of the Lord, because you will be saved on that day. You will be delivered. But second of all, you're children of the day because the gospel has come into the world and it's making headway. Christ's kingdom is pushing forward against Satan's kingdom. And Christ is taking back uh, people that were lost at the fall. Jesus is pushing forward like the day takes over the night. And his kingdom is coming. So we are children of that day. Children of the kingdom. Children of the gospel. And children who should live according to the gospel. According to this this new life that Christ has given us. So as John says in 1 John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Meaning there's no, no sinfulness, there's no evil in him. We also should live that way. We should live like God. We should be holy because he is holy. Those who follow God should also walk in the light. And so Paul continues this metaphor. Because they're children of the day, they should not sleep, he says. Sleep here refers to forgetfulness. It refers to indulgence in temptations, whatever they may be. It refers to laziness in pursuing God. To just the, the mentality that I have believed in Christ, now I can just go on. I can, I can live my life. I don't have to particularly pursue God. I'm already in Christ, right? But Paul is saying the opposite here. Let's not be faithless. Let's not fall asleep and be unaware. But stay awake. Be watchful. He adds that they should not get drunk. Again, drunkenness is part of this metaphor. Drunkenness is this indulgence in sin. Just doing the easiest thing. Doing whatever it is that comes along that you desire. Paul encourages them that as it is the middle of the day, because Christ's gospel is shining and taking over and moving forwards, he encourages them not to sleep or get drunk. And this means that they should put off their old temptations and sins. This, this coming of Christ is it's not uh, an opportunity for them to become lazy, to say, well, Jesus is coming back. Why should we do anything? Let's just wait. To the very opposite, the coming of Christ is a motivation to seek Christ, to stay awake, to do what we can to to know Christ, to live in the day and to put off sleep, to put off drunkenness and indulgence to sin. It is an encouragement to us to pursue Christ. Now, Paul is encouraging them to to vigilance, but he's not saying be good, so that when Jesus comes back, you'll be accepted. Just like we saw last week in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus did not buy his way into heaven, but out of joy of salvation coming to his house, as Jesus said, salvation has come to this house this day. Out of that joy of being saved, of being in Christ, he decided that he would give away his possessions 
that he would give half of his goods away. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, stay awake and do these things so that you'll be saved. He's saying, you are children of the day. If you're in Christ, the promises are for you. Christ will deliver you when he returns. Therefore, live obedient lives out of joy. Out of joy, knowing that when Christ returns, you don't want to be caught in the middle of sinning. Jesus will come with a trumpet sound, but he's going to come quickly. And when he comes, we don't want to be caught in temptation and in sin and in sleep and drunkenness, as Paul puts it. So Paul's saying, purify yourself. Live as children of the day. The promise that Christ may return at any time, far from being an excuse for laziness, is a call to diligence and a call to obedience out of joy. Paul adds another metaphor here, a warfare, me- a warfare metaphor. Look at verse 8. He says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This, uh, this armor metaphor that he uses is similar to uh, the metaphors that he's used before. Just as one who over, uh, who ignores the thief coming in the night, will be overtaken and will have his goods stolen. So we also should be prepared for Christ's coming. We should be prepared so that we don't fall into these indulgences, into this sin and into the sleep and drunkenness that he's talking about here. If you just let yourselves go, if you, if you don't work, he says, to take care of your spiritual health, you will naturally slide into these sins and temptations. It is effort to put on, uh, to put on armor. And it takes effort to, to fight in the war against your own desires. And here, against the, the temptations that come to you from the outside. So there's the temptations from within us that we would just, by being lazy, slide into, into sleep and into drunkenness and and. Uh, turn away from Christ, but there's also uh, temptations and attacks from the outside. You will probably remember Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, where Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful. How similar to our passage. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is not passive, Peter says. He's not, he's not lazily waiting for Christians to wander to him. He is pursuing Christians, particularly like a lion prowling around for prey. Satan is pursuing us. He is after us. Satan is a real person. And he and his kingdom have plans to destroy the kingdom of God. They will not because God will not allow his kingdom to be overcome. But there is danger to us as individuals that if we grow lazy, Satan would attack us and would destroy our spiritual health. So the call here is to put on faith, hope, and love. The, the triad of Christian virtues, that common uh, three that, that Paul refers to. We are to put on faith, 
Because we trust in Jesus' death for us. We trust, as Ryan read earlier, the passage from uh, Romans 8, I think, that nothing can separate us from Christ. There is no condemnation for us anymore. That's our faith. We put on love so that we are not divided as a church. So that as a body of believers and as brothers and sisters in Christ, there would not be any reason for the church to split and for there to be dissension among the church. And we put on the hope of salvation because we know that Christ will return and that God will save us. So these three things we put on, Paul says, specifically in order to protect ourselves against attacks from Satan and against uh, spiritual attacks. Who knows what they'll look like? Spiritual attacks may not be obvious to us. They may be subtle. But those spiritual attacks will come from within us, so don't sleep, stay awake, and from outside of us, so put on the armor of Christ. Finally, Paul encourages the Thessalonians here with this. He says, we live with Christ. We live with Christ. Because God has not destined us to wrath, but to salvation. So the promise is, we will not die, right? We're recalling what what Paul said earlier. There will be a resurrection. And those who have died will will not die forever. They will not die the second death. They are already living with Christ. And those who are alive, he says, who are still alive, you live with Christ. You're already accepted. You're part of God's family. Notice that this is a guarantee. This is a promise, not a threat. The previous passage uh, where Paul's talking about the coming of Christ, the suddenness, the destruction, can sound like a threat. But Paul's saying, this is not a threat to you. This is a guarantee. You already live with Christ. When some people saw the title of this message, the day of the Lord is coming, I got reactions like, oh, a fire and brimstone message, goody. Um, Just one goody, actually. Uh, But the point of a message like this to Christians is not fire and brimstone. The point of the return of Christ is a promise of deliverance. It's a promise that we're already accepted with Jesus. So when he comes back, we will continue with him. We will continue to live with him. Paul's pointing out that God has promised them deliverance. He's promised them salvation. And how has God promised this? And how has he uh, been true on this promise? He says, through the death of Jesus. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us. Who died for us. That, that little phrase, for us, Christ died for us, is so important. Christ died for all who will trust in him, we're told. And anyone who trusts in him will be saved. And the for us is what we call in, in theology, vicarious atonement. Christ died for us, a vicarious atonement. Vicarious means... Uh, It's an action, in this sense, it's an action done by one person on behalf of another. Christ died on behalf of us, in our place. What what did Jesus have to die for us for? We have all sinned, we're told, in the Bible. Romans says, Paul writes to the Romans, 
Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. God created you. He owns you, each one of you and me. God owns us. And we have all fallen short of honoring him as we should. Everyone is condemned before God. So Jesus stepped in and took the punishment that we have all earned. There is a punishment. Anyone who understands uh, this world and God to be just must recognize that there is a punishment coming. Many people leave this world uh, who have done horrible things and, and they leave in triumph. They die in ease, the Psalms say. David uh, laments in the Psalms, how can evil people get away with everything and then die in comfort and the righteous are, are, are pushed around all day long? The righteous are the ones who are afraid, always watching their back. Their enemies are pursuing them. It's because God has promised justice beyond this world. There is justice beyond this world. There is punishment for all sins. And every one of us has fallen into that. Every one of us deserves that punishment. doesn't matter if you think you're a good person. You are condemned before a holy and perfect God. But he is a loving God. And he has promised to save us. So he sent his son as a sacrifice. This is the for us. Christ died for us. A sacrifice on our behalf. So that the punishment that we've earned would be taken by Jesus. That's the cross. The cross is not an accident. The cross is not the the sad ending to the life of a promising, wise sage in Galilee. The cross is an intentional end. And Jesus told his disciples from the beginning, he said, I came for one purpose, to die and to make my life a ransom for all who would believe in me. Jesus died for us. And the for us means that God has promised that we will obtain salvation, Paul says. Because the punishment that was taken by Christ, the vicarious atonement, is complete. It is complete. There is nothing more that we need to add to it. And so Paul wants that to be completely clear here. He says, even though I'm telling you, stay awake, put on the armor of God, be careful not to fall into sin, I want you to know that Christ's death for you is complete. There is nothing more that needs to be added and God has promised you salvation because of it. He will deliver you when he returns. There should be no fear in Christianity. There should be no fear, 1 John says, because perfect love, the love of God, drives out fear. God has loved us and he has sent his his only son, his beloved son for us. So God killed Jesus. God killed Jesus. He punished Jesus for us. That's the for us here. So that we live with Christ. Jesus died so that we live. That's the the promise here. It says uh, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The awake or asleep here refers back to 1 Thessalonians 4, the, the passage about resurrection. He says, whether you have died or whether you are alive, you live with Christ. Those who die go to be with Christ immediately. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today I will see you in paradise. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The promise is, whether you are alive or whether you are dead, you live with Christ. 
So we should, we should transfer that hope to our own daily lives right now. We live with Christ. In some sense, similar to the way that those who have died are with Christ. We have the promises. We are the children of God. So, uh, Paul is reminding them that even death cannot separate them from Christ. And so he tells them, encourage one another. Encourage one another and build each other up. I love this quote from Thomas Watson. He says, Where true faith lives in the heart, there also will be a desire to to promote the life of grace in those we converse with. Though God is the fountain of grace, yet the saints, the believers, are pipes to transmit living streams to others. Grace comes from God, but frequently it comes through us as believers to one another. It's our job, Paul says, to be strategic, to encourage one another, to build each other up, to watch for those ways that we can say, we can exhort one another, and that we can, that we can do that work of building up the church. The grace of God moves through us to one another. Isn't that an amazing promise? Isn't that a high calling? Paul tells them, we live with Christ, so share that life with one another. If we live with Christ, we'll want to encourage others to look for the day of the Lord, to watch and pray, to be vigilant in looking for the return of Christ, not to fall asleep, but to put on the armor uh, of faith, hope, and love, and to continue following Christ. Let me add one final parenthesis uh, to this this passage. This text speaks specifically to Christians, and it's an encouragement, like I've said. But note what it doesn't say. The return of the Lord is not a call to hunker down and to, to, to withdraw from the world and to just wait in our little commune here, apart from the world, to wait for the coming of Christ. It's a call to the very opposite. Paul doesn't say this. This is my parenthesis. But he does say this in other places. The coming of the Lord should be to us an encouragement to share the gospel, to share this message of hope with those who don't know Christ. If you love your friends and your family and your coworkers, you will not just sit quietly by and allow them to go to hell if they're not Christians. I heard a a non-Christian recently, a famous guy, uh, uh, say this in a, in a video. He said, how unloving do you have to be to truly believe that someone's going to hell and not tell them about it? He said, I respect Christians for, for you know, sharing their beliefs. I don't want them to be pushed on me, but you can share them with me and tell, tell, tell me about them. He said, but how unloving do you have to be to hide that message from someone? If you really believe that, If you believe that Christ is coming in judgment for those who don't trust in Christ, let that be another encouragement for you to share the good news of Christ. And remember, the gospel is what we share. We don't go out and tell people, Christ is coming, you're going to die. We tell people, there is a God, and he's, he's created you, and you've sinned against him, but he has sent his son to die for you. If you trust in him, So we share the gospel, the good news. The good news includes bad news, but it's not just bad news. 
we share the good news with those who, who don't know Christ. And let this, the return of Christ, be an encouragement for you to do that. So if we believe this message, let us live like it. May we not be distracted by questions about when Christ will return, about the timing of the second coming. But may we live obediently and joyfully to stay awake. And may we build each other up and be strategic. Because the day of the Lord is coming and we should expect it. Amen?